Welcome to Adaptify. I'm Mike, I'm a paraplegic from New Zealand, and it's my mission to find the Adaptifiers of the world. People who have overcome challenges and found new, creative, interesting ways to be free despite needing to use a wheelchair for their mobility. Hey everyone, welcome back. Thanks for joining me today. Before I introduce today's guest, I just want to wish you and your family well in this COVID-19 craziness that we're all facing. I really hope it isn't too badly affecting you. And look, on the plus side, you get to listen to a few more podcasts while um, perhaps some of you are self-isolating. I hope that this podcast provides value and some tips and tricks on how to navigate uh, a tricky situation like many of our guests have faced. In fact, all of our guests have faced tremendous hurdles and um, you know you can really learn a lot from their recovery and the way they've navigated that situation. Today's guest is no different. Her name is Bean Gill. She's from Alberta, Canada, and she's been through a rough patch with depression, but she has some really useful tips on how to navigate that. Uh, she's also the founder of Rayu Paralysis Center. She's got a big vision to um, improve the life of many, many people um, with paralysis and other conditions that need advanced rehab technology. Um, Bean, it's so great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It's good to be on. Hey, it was great to catch up with you while I was in Edmonton too and your team. And uh, it was so, so great to see uh, Rayu uh, Recovery Center in full swing. Um, um, yeah, well done. It's so good. We'll talk some more about that shortly. But uh, to start off with, why is it that you're, um, you're a wheelchair user and how, how long have you been as uh, part of this community? Oh, uh, well, I got my wheels about seven and a half years ago. Uh, it was July 2012 when I was in Las Vegas for my friend's day get. And uh, it was Friday the 13th. And we were just, you know, lounging in the hotel room and stuff. And we were going to go to the pool that day. And so I walked over to the curtains to open them and saw that it was raining outside. And I remember thinking, like, that's really weird. Like, when does it rain in Vegas in July? And then I walked back to the bed, and that was the last time I walked on my own. I had um, excruciating pain in my low back, and it was unexplained. And it lasted a few minutes, and then I could not move my right leg. And so I was laying there trying to bend both my legs, but only my left one was moving. And so I was trying to wiggle my toes, do any kind of movement I could, but my right leg wasn't moving. Um, A couple of minutes later, it ended up going prickly from my hip to my toes, and I was left paralyzed from my waist down within like 10 minutes. So what were your your friends uh, doing at this point? Um, They were kind of freaking out. Uh, I was really calm throughout the whole thing because I'm an x-ray tech. And so I was logically thinking about you know, the spinal cord and where it splits and stuff. And, but yeah, they were kind of, they were freaking out and they just didn't know what was happening and they started to panic. But then I, you know, called my insurance company, called 911, went to the hospital, experienced the American healthcare system. <laughs> so that was in Vegas, right? And so what, uh, you know, how did it, um, how did it uh, flow from there? What, um, what, what came next? <laughs> So I was there for 12 days in the hospital and every single like diagnostic test that I had came back clear. And so they couldn't find a physical reason as to why I was paralyzed. So they told me that it was emotional 
and then oh, yeah. I had conversion disorder. And <laughs> You're kidding me. Really? For real, yes. But after I tell you my rest of my year, you'll understand why they came to that conclusion. So I always say that 2012 was and I hope remains the worst year of my life. Like that January. That January I turned 30 and that was, you know, all good. Um I was also married at that time. And in April of 2012, I left my ex after we had a massive fight and he ended up beating me up. So this is before yeah. this happened, right? Yeah, this is months before. Okay. So, yeah, they're good. So there wasn't a very good start to the year by the sound of it. And then com- no. compounding this, you know, you're away with a girl's trip and, you know, yeah. having a great time and then just – out of the blue, this um, this happens, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. So you you find yourself in the hospital, and you, no one can really diagnose what's going on. What what? How did you how did you end up finding out what it was? Um, I didn't get my official diagnosis until I came back to Canada, and three months later, um, I had another MRI done because I started having really violent spasms. And, you know, I took the spasms to mean a good sign because to me, any movement was better than no movement. Um, but my family doctor was just like, this is not conversion. This does not how it presents. So he sent me for another MRI. And on that one, like I wasn't expecting to see anything because all of my other MRIs had been come back clear. Mm. But on that one, they said that there was a lesion in my spinal cord at T10, T11, looks like transverse myelitis. So what is transverse myelitis? Um, directly translated, it's inflammation of the spinal cord at whatever level, because it can happen anywhere on your spinal cord. So mine was T10, T11, which is about waist level. And um, they told me that it didn't show up on any previous um, MRIs because it's kind of like a scar tissue. So it like took a few months to develop. Wow. So um, yeah. what, what causes it? Do, do, do they know what causes the transverse myelitis? <laughs> no. no, it's idiopathic, which is a fancy word for we don't know. <laughs> uh, they don't know. It's just basically luck of the draw. But after like, you know, over the last seven and a half years, I've obviously done a lot of research and um, stress had a major part to play with it. I believe it was the Epstein-Barr virus that paralyzed me, also known as EBV. It's very, very common. Millions of people have it. Only the special few have it go to stage four. And that was me. So had it been diagnosed earlier, would the outcome be different, do you think? Um, no, because they did give me a bunch of steroids prophylactically just in case there was any inflammation, which there was, it just went undetected. And so the treatment I think would have been the same. They probably could have done like a plasma, like where they kind of clean your plasma out, but I don't know. I like to think that it wouldn't have changed things because I don't want to think that I have that missed opportunity. Wow. Okay. So that's quite, uh, quite traumatic. Um, just stepping back, you know, your, your life before all this, um, Mm -hmm. you know, what were some of the things you enjoyed? You know, who who are you as a person? (laughs) Um, I've always been into like, Oh, I've always been active. I've always been into fitness and I did a lot of kickboxing before. And I really, really miss that. I actually miss that more than walking. And, um, I wanted to like fight somebody in real life, but that's not going to happen now. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, I used to do a lot of yoga. I used to do run, like run the stairs in our river Valley. We have a beautiful river Valley here and there's lots of sets of stairs all around it. And so I used to run up and down those stairs all the time. And I actually did that once on my hands. <laughs> it was really, really hard. <laughs> so w- what do you think drove you to be so active? It was there, is it, is it just you were born this way or was there, um, you know, yeah. What, what, what is it that makes you so active? Uh, like growing up. So I have three siblings. I have two sisters and a brother and growing up, I was no, my nickname was Morty, which means fat girl. And, uh, when you're called fat girl all day, every day, you believe you're a fat girl, right? I would, you know, if someone asked me to describe you, I wouldn't, (laughs) there's no way. I mean, you're (laughs) super fit looking, um, you know, healthy and active. But, um, but you know, maybe, maybe you had some, um, early, that, that's, that's a pretty hard thing to be called as a kid. Right. So, so that drove you on to, uh, you know, basically prove, prove people wrong and to, uh, uh not live up into that name. Right. Yeah. Well, it was in grade six. I remember very clearly that like, you know, I tried being bulimic. It didn't work. I tried stopping to eat for a day that didn't work. Cause I love to eat too much. So I was like, okay, well, I guess I got active. <laughs> and so I used to get up early and go for bike rides for like two hours before school. Um, we got the ab and the ab roller <laughs> and the Tybo videos and I would just do stuff at home. And then ever since then, I just like has continued. And now, now it's one of my great stress releases is to work out. Yeah, I'm sure that um, the mindset you developed when um, pushing your body um, has certainly helped you in your recovery and um, and to get where you are today. Um, I always I always think that if you are able to push yourself uh, physically and mentally, um, you know, whenever you've got that opportunity, then you'll have a resilience and a skill to be able to face challenging situations like you did. Yeah. Well, I just like, you just put things into like priority. Right. And to me, like I've always, before I wanted to be skinny, I wanted to be, I wanted to look a certain way where now I want to be healthy. Hmm. Right. Like not so much of what I look like, but it's how I'm feeling. And you know, my goal is to live to be 109 years old. And so if I'm going to make it that far, I need to take care of myself now. That's amazing. I've never heard anyone say they've got a goal to live to 109 or, uh, in fact, any any age. Um, really? I, no, I've, no one's ever said to me, I, you know, I've got this goal, I'm going to live to 100. Uh, oh. And I, you know, I think... <laughs> I think if anyone can do it, you can do it for sure. Uh, and, um, and I think it's a really worthy goal. Um, so, okay. So you've, you've been diagnosed with transverse myelitis. You're, uh, you're paralyzed. You've, uh, you know, you left your abusive partner, um, mm-hmm. and you've returned to, you've returned to, um, Edmonton and, <laughs> and, and now what? Honestly, at that time, I had no idea, right? Like I knew I needed to get into physio and like one of the biggest blessings out of my misdiagnosis was, um, I started seeing a therapist because initially I had thought that it was a mental block in my brain that was holding my mobility back. Right. Mm, mm. So I found a psychologist in the community. I've been paying her out of pocket this whole time and I still see her to this day. Um, but that's been one of the biggest blessings because at that time I never talked about my feelings or emotions. 
Mm. And I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to process them or to move through like the hard times. And so she really helped me find myself and to fall in love with myself again and to really like be okay being a girl in a wheelchair. This is a really interesting point. You know, uh, you, you, you know, without a challenge like you and I have faced, you have your, um, you know, everyone has their, their mental baggage, right? Everyone has uh, their way of looking at the world. And yeah. when you come to something like this, unless you've got a solid um, base, um, you know, mentally, this can break you. This can, this can totally break you. And um, so to be able to find the help you need to actually uh, improve your mindset and to figure out, um, why you think the way you think um, is a, a, an essential part of being able to get through something like this. So it's actually just, you know, this to a lot of people just is the um, the last, you know, the the last matchstick that breaks the, the the match house, if you like, you know. And you know, in a lot of ways, that that really forces you to to have to look at um, your mindset and the mindset you. Um, you grew up with. Um, I know it, it did me. I, I really had to think think hard about um, my past and you know my behaviour in my past. And fortunately, I'd I'd been through some um, a few tough psychological times where, like you, I'd sought uh, I'd sought some help to work through some childhood issues and mm. and get clear and I, th- I you know I think without having done that um prior to my injury I, I definitely would have struggled to make it through and uh, and remain positive so um I think that's really good advice for anyone out there listening if you're um you know really struggling you know uh seeking help with a professional isn't isn't something to be af- afraid of or ashamed of it's no, not at all. It, it's actually just um you know someone that's that's trained and can take a um an objective point of view and ask you some questions that will help you um understand your you know the place you're in you know is 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 it's money well spent it's expensive you know and if your um, healthcare plan or insurance doesn't cover that then you know do whatever you can to get the funding to um to get a few sessions and um and and you know work at it that's what i'd recommend yeah i recommend that too and i say that to you know whether you have a disability or not right? Everybody experiences loss. Everybody experiences trauma and grief, but we're not told how to deal with it or how to cope with it. And there's no shame in asking for help, but there's a giant stigma around any kind of therapy, right? But, you know, we got to break these stigmas down. Totally. So being you were a radio tech, um, radiographer um, tech in Edmonton, and were you able to go back to that um, line of work? No, unfortunately I wasn't. You're not able to perform the tasks from a wheelchair. And at that time, my employer uh, was not able to create a role for me. And so I had to, you know, stop being an x-ray tech, but it's put me on a completely different path. (laughs) So, um, so what did you do in those first, uh, first few months or years, uh, you know, once you'd returned, you'd been told you didn't um, didn't didn't have a, a job to go back to. Um, well, I was I had short term disability, and then I was on long term disability. So luckily, I was still having money come in, and my priority turned to my recovery. 
you know, I started seeing um, things come back um, just a couple of months after I was paralyzed. I was able to wiggle my right big toe. And um, then I was able to, you know, internally, externally rotate my right hip. And I was able to contract my left abs. And slowly things just started coming back. And I knew I didn't just, I had started physio as soon as I came back from Vegas because my muscles, as you know, like you're, they atrophy so fast. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's what I kind of really put my energy into. And it was just all sorts of appointments, doctor's appointments, specialists, tests. And, um, you know, it was after I got my diagnosis that I also like, it tipped me over the edge into a dark depression. And I think that's kind of normal for anybody who goes through any kind of traumatic experience. Um, but it was really hard to like get through. So what were some of the things you were thinking and, and how did you get through it? Uh, well, one of the first thoughts I had after being paralyzed actually was like, who's going to date a girl in a wheelchair? Hmm. Right. Like I was newly single. I had just left my ex and hadn't really even like figured anything out. And now all of a sudden I'm in a wheelchair. I have a catheter. I'm pooping all over the place. Like, you know, I have no control over my body. I've gained so much weight, lost so much muscle mass and uh, lost my self identity. And so it was through obviously the work with my therapist helped a lot Um, but when I was at the rehab hospital, you know, I met a girl who was a high level quadriplegic and she said to me, she, she said, I'd be happy if I could move a fucking finger. Mm. And that really changed my life. It changed my perspective because I have my hands and I thank God for them all the time. I'm very, very grateful that I have my hands and that I, at that time I wasn't independent, but. I am now. And, um, you know, they often say it takes somebody meeting somebody in a worse spot to really realize what you have. And, uh, it was in that instant that I went from thinking about like being sad about what I lost to being grateful for what I had. So do you have any other advice for a person newly in, in a situation similar to yours, um, to help them navigate through this time? Yeah, honestly, feel your emotions, right? We're taught to don't be sad. Don't cry. We're taught to ignore our emotions and to think with our intellect. But most of the time our intellect doesn't know what it's doing and we feel emotions for a reason. And so if you can learn to be in tune with your emotions and really let them happen and cry when you need to be angry when you need to laugh when you need to um and then mm-hmm. have a like have a healthy mechanism to get your stress and your frustrations out so for me that was writing i, I wrote a blog from about 2 weeks on and i totally agree with you when i when i was sad i didn't hold my emotions in i I cried. I cried. I cried in front of people. I cried by myself. I, you know, it just didn't really matter. I, I just let them, let them come out. I think in part because they were so strong. I, there was no way I could hold them in, but I, yeah. I learned to just let, let them go. And, um, I also made light of things and I, I, I 
yeah. you know, I used to sort of make fun of my situation. You know, I remember taking uh, or had someone taking a photo of a, um, a nurse with a rubber glove and, you know, I was sort of bent, bent over in the bed or leaned over in the bed and I was making this <laughs> horrific face, you know, like, ah, I'm about to get, you know, um, molested <laughs> or something. And, and, and the nurse, you know, um, he he enjoyed their humor as well, right? Um, and it yeah. just just sort of made light of the situation. Yeah, um, laughing definitely makes things easier. And like when you have a good support system around you, who can you can just kind of be yourself. And when people don't treat you any different, it just helps that much more. Yeah, I still joke about it, right? Like I call when I fall out of my wheelchair, I call it spilling the beans. <laughs> love it. <laughs> I love it. It's so good. Yeah, I, I remember the first time I fell out of my wheelchair in public. Uh, it was a, yeah. it was like a Superman. Um, you know, I, I, I hit a um, a little drainage channel and I was going really fast mm-hmm. through this open um, cobble, cobblestone um, uh, shopping area, and yeah. and I hit it with my cast wheels and I just launched out and there was people yeah. everywhere and and the look of shock on their face and they were you know should we call an ambulance should we and I was on the the ground laughing so hard I couldn't I, I couldn't stop laughing and they thought this guy must be drunk or on drugs or you know like is he is he crazy and I just said it's okay don't worry it's all good you know I, I think I spent you know a fair bit of my time reassuring those around me that everything was going to yeah. be okay and that I was I was okay and um, you know so there, there are some humorous moments there but, but the first thing first new situation you face is all, I always found the hardest. And so, you know, the first time I went down to a friend's place to visit, um, you know, I was racked with grief and emotion um, mm-hmm. because they had three steps up to their front door and I couldn't get up there independently. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, you know, what I learned was that if you lean into those first experiences and you mm-hmm. kind of get them over and done with as quick as possible, then, um, then the next time it's easier and the next time it's easier, the next time it's easier. And then it just, you know, you don't think about it anymore. So, um, yeah, I recommend that's another thing, you know, lean into the experiences, um, you know, by like going out for the first time and, but just, you know, realize it's going to be, it's going to be an emotional time. It's, it's going to be challenging, but then the time after that will be easier. Um, well, and it's just, yeah, it's also like being okay, like to ask for help, right? It's mm, very hard to be a completely independent person working for yourself, doing everything yourself. And then the, after this flip of a switch, you're now 100% dependent on other people to help you. Right. And so for the ego and for the pride, it's really, really difficult for a lot of people to be in that situation and to accept help. And, um, that's something that I really had to work on myself in the first couple of years, for sure. Um, that it's okay. I do need help and I'm going to teach people how to help me and I'll ask people when I need it, but it is a hard concept. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've gotten certainly a lot, uh, a lot better at that. I suppose the, the other thing too, is the feeling that you're a burden if you ask all the time and, I don't know. Have you got any tips on how to sort of overcome that mindset? I think that's just something that we all put in our own heads, right? And like, I've brought that up to my family a few times, and especially in the very beginning. And they always reassured me that I'm not a burden and that if this had happened to somebody else, that I would also be offering my help and wanting to help. 
Right. And so this did happen to me and, you know, I have to be open to letting other people help me. And, you know, that feeling of a burden, I mean, I, like I said, it's been seven and a half years for me and sometimes I still feel it. Right. It's just mm. something that will kind of always be there when you're in that situation that where you do need help. But I think that's where a lot of self-talk comes in. And in we're as humans, we're really good at negative self-talk, mm. um, but we're not taught or it's not really promoted how to do positive self-talk to yourself. It's a really, it's a really interesting point. I think you, I think you're absolutely right there. Um, it's like when, you know, we did this Kickstarter for the lap stacker and we had mm -hmm. so many positive comments. Um, mm -hmm. but every now and again, we'd get a negative comment or, you know, mm -hmm. someone saying, ah, oh, you know, this is, you know, it's too expensive or you should just use this or, you know, what, are, you know, blah, blah, blah. And mm -hmm. for, you know, one comment in a in hundred or 2000 was the one that, you really focused on it was yeah. um you know and, and i had to actually sort of just block those out and realize that well actually yeah. uh, you know i'm just focusing on that rather than than all the positive comments and i, I think you can do the same when you're mm -hmm. evaluating your um you know your position or or a situation in in your own mind um yeah give yourself some credit for what you what you've been able to achieve and yeah. Um, Cause we're all taught to like self-criticize, right? We're our own worst critics and, and you know, a negative, uh, what is it? Misery loves company, right? When mm. Somebody starts pitching, everybody else joins in and stuff too. Same thing goes in our head when mm. we're talking to ourselves in a very negative way, those kind of thoughts are going to be amplified. And, um, like for myself, I call my depression, the darkness and, like my visual is like, you remember, you know, that Spider-Man movie with Venom. Mm -hmm. Yep. And you know, Venom was like black and like sticky and he mm. would just capture things and turn it black. Mm. So in my head, that's what my depression looks like. And it's constantly covering my feet and my ankles. And it's always trying to go up my legs and get my whole body. And sometimes there's been a, quite a few times in the last seven and a half years where it has. And now I work daily to keep it down at my feet. And I think it's hard, but it's something that is, needs to be a daily practice. So when you say daily practice, is this uh, some sort of, uh, you, you know, routine that you, yeah. you do? What, what does that look like? Um, like I've tried uh, lots of different things um, currently. Like on Spotify, I have a Af positive affirmations playlist that I've created for myself. Like there's thousands of affirmations on Spotify. And so I just listen to a bunch and then whatever I feel resonates best with me, I put it in my playlist and I listen to that every day. Like when I shower, I just have it on my phone playing out loud. And I not only listen to it, I also speak them out loud and I speak it with belief right? Uh, like these last few weeks with all this virus stuff happening, I constantly say, I have a healthy immune system. I'm strong and I'm healthy. Mm. And you have to believe it if it's going to work. Um, I also write in a gratitude journal every day. I just write three things that I'm grateful for. And I write a positive affirmation. It literally takes me less than 30 seconds, but it's a good way to just remember you know, there's things out there that I'm grateful for, like clean air to breathe, a house to live in, my hands, my arms, my ears, my smell, my taste, mm. my eyes, you know? That takes that takes uh, discipline, right, to, to do this. Yeah. How do yeah. you how do you discipline yourself? 
Um, well, you know, there's been too many times in the last seven and a half years where I've had suicidal thoughts and where I've almost acted on those suicidal thoughts. And I don't want to go back there. I don't want those thoughts to have capture hold over me. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that negative being that I was numerous times. And so if I don't do this, that's where I'm going to end up. And that's enough motivation for me to continue doing it. Wow, that sure is. Uh, thanks for sharing that. It's pretty, um, pretty personal um, thoughts and, um, and and learnings. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Bing. That's great. Of course, I just feel like I have to be open. We all have to be open and honest with our struggles, right? Lots of people have told me, "Oh, you're always so happy. Your life is so so perfect." <laughs> it is far from perfect. But that's why I share my struggles and my dark thoughts and stuff, because I know I'm not alone. We all have them. Yeah, we do. So, right? Address and, it. And, you know, there's, there's three amazing, you know, ways to improve your mindset right there, you know. And unless you had talked about those or had asked you about those, you know, someone out there listening may not not be able to try those things. And um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that's 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 incredible. Um, so you know, your your family uh, it comes from a um, uh, Indian uh, background. Is is that correct? Yep. yep. What social um, or cultural um, learnings can you share about growing up in in, in an Indian um, family, and how do how does a culture in India deal with um, disability? Good question. Um, you know, growing up in Canada, being Indian, it was, it's difficult, right? We're the, we were the first generation that was born here. And so my parents wanted to keep their tradition and their religion and their culture alive through us. And at the same time, we wanted to be Canadian. So for us, it was hard to like meld the two Mm. years, but you know, you just kind of do your best in that situation. Right. And, uh, as far as stigmas with our culture, I mean, you know, I was never treated any differently until I was paralyzed. Once I was paralyzed, you know, people stare at you. Um, every You can tell when people are talking about you, they look at you with pity. Um, everyone's very curious as to what happened and why you're in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And you know, in our culture, and I know our culture is not the only one, but people with disabilities are thought of as shameful you bring shame upon your family. And so mostly they're hidden. They're Mm. hidden away at home. They're not brought to weddings. They're not brought to, you know, cultural engagements. They're not brought to church. And it's sad because it's something that's completely out of your control. And that person is still a person and still deserves love and respect. But culturally, everyone's always worried about what everyone else is going to say. I think it's so dumb. (laughs) So, you, I mean, you're the type of person that is not going to let that happen. You know, you're, you're not going to, um, you're not going to hide away. You're actually going to try and change uh, that attitude amongst your extended family. Um, did you encounter any, um, you know, do you have to have any tough conversations with anyone amongst your family? Um, not really in my family. No, I mean, it's just. Like distant family, yes, right? Like they, there's still some people that won't acknowledge my disability, even though it's seven and a half years later. Mm. And like, you know, like my people, like not automatically, but a lot of people do think that once you have a disability, you become asexual. 
mm-hmm. right? That you're no longer dateable. You're no longer, no one's going to marry you, you know? And in our culture, like marriage is the end all be all goal for a lot of people, which is stupid. But, uh, so I kind of faced that a little bit, but mm-hmm. like, I already know how my family is and I know how my culture is and I know it all needs to change. It's very old school, very patriarchy. And, uh, it doesn't make sense in this day and age. So it doesn't really bother me that much, but I know for other people it does. And I was at a wedding. It was my cousin's wedding quite a few years ago. And, you know, I still dance at receptions. I still dance at parties and yeah, I dance from my chair, but I can still dance. Mm. And so I do. And there was another girl there in a wheelchair and she had spina bifida and she was like, in a, she was a teenager. And after seeing me dance, she got her family to bring her, her wheelchair onto the dance floor. And she started dancing too. And her mom told my mom that that was the first time she's ever danced. Wow. Right. <laughs> uh, it's so it's, uh, it's, well, it's, it's great. You were there. The timing was right for her to, um, to, yeah. uh, to see that. And, uh, and feel like, that. it shouldn't be like that. People should not feel that way, but people do because they're always worried about what everyone else is going to say. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's be honest, dancing from a wheelchair isn't, isn't, uh, isn't that easy. Like it's not, well, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not easy. It's not like it, um, it's not like you used to be able to dance. Right. Um, but, um, but it, you know, you, it's like, I was never a good dancer anyway, you know, like I was just a clumsy, you know, geez. I, I remember going to Argentina and, and going out, um, to some clubs and just, Oh, it was just embarrassing. You know, it was absolutely embarrassing. So, so, um, you know, you have to learn, you know, there's some skills, it takes skill to learn and you've got to spend the time. And, uh, and and in some ways it's a cultural thing, you know, and Latin countries Mm -hmm. dance is a way of life and New Zealand, it's not, you know, not, not for most. Um, but yeah, you, you can get out there and and groove around and and you know what I discovered dancing from a wheelchair is that that people would just they would you know they would sometimes they'd try and lift you up and sometimes they'd like mm-hmm. try and spin you around and they you know they they yeah. they genuinely um, rally around you which, which sometimes you don't want the attention but um but you're gonna get it yeah. <laughs> you know yeah so um so yeah I I, I think it's cool um. Yeah. Yeah. So on the, I guess on the dating front, the dating side of things, what's, what's been your experience there? It hasn't been too bad, but like, so I did a lot of online dating and, um, it's a, it's easier way to connect people and stuff, obviously. Um, but for me, like I had, I put my picture of myself in my wheelchair as my profile picture Mm. and my wheelchair or my Walker was in every single one of my pictures. And to me, that was really important because I felt like that needs to be shown. So if that's not for you, then swipe left. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. But I have had a, quite a few like guy friends who did the opposite where they didn't show their wheelchair in their pictures. It wasn't anywhere in their profile. And so then they would match with girls and they would start talking to them. And then, then you have to have that awkward conversation of like, Hey, by the way, I'm paralyzed. And, you know, like this one guy friend of mine told me that nine times out of 10, the girl stopped talking to him. Mm, mm. That's hard on your emotional well-being. And so I just feel like if those people are that shallow, then just swipe left, right? That's fine. 
Mm. Yeah, you're probably better not to go through that um, uh, <laughs> that that agony. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like use the use the filter um, to start with, right? Yeah. Um, I've heard the opposite when it comes to job applications and, um, you know, the idea is to get the foot in the door and to get the interview and then to prove yourself. Um, I I wonder if you've got thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I feel like for job interviews, um, resumes shouldn't have names on them. They should only have the qualifications of the person because for a lot of jobs, if you have an ethnic sounding name, you're going to get looked over. If you are a female, you're going to get looked over. Hmm. If you have a disability, you're going to get looked over. And it's, you know, people just want to believe that we're all equal, equal opportunity employers, but reality is we're not, especially here in Alberta where it's an oil and gas dominated industry. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I've had a, quite a few friends who don't put their uh, disability on their resume. And when they go in for that interview, the shocked look on the people's faces <laughs> right? It's kind of, it's kind of worth it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's that's funny. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You have to use your own discretion, I guess, for that. Yeah, totally. So, so Bean, you, um, you set up um, Rayu, a paralysis Mm -hmm. recovery center. What, um, what brought you to do that? Um, my recovery took me on this crazy wild journey. Um, I ended up in California at a place called project walk. And, um, I absolutely fell in love with the program that they had there. And the results I saw were crazy. And all it is was intense physical exercise geared to reconnect your brain to your body. And, it made so much sense to me because I had a you know fitness background before, but it just, the results were awesome. It wasn't gimmicky and you had to put in the work to see the results. Mm. And so when I came back from my first trip to California, I came back with franchise papers and I needed to find a trainer here in Edmonton to help me with my home program. So I contacted the U of A here and fanned out a job posting and, out of there, I found Nancy, who is now my business partner. Um, she's wanted to do this her whole life. Uh, she just didn't know she could do it in Canada. And so then her and I started working out together. And I mean, it was intense, three to four hours a day, six days a week. And I ended up going back to California for five weeks. And then she came with me for the last week. We did the train your trainer program. And that was kind of the point where she got her validation of what she was doing is correct. Cause here there was nobody to ask. And we had talked about opening a center here right from the very get go, but I wasn't in the right mindset and she was still a student. So it didn't happen then, but anybody that I would meet on my journey, I would introduce them to Nancy and be like, you have to work out with her. So she was going around to people's houses to train them while going to school that's when we started to see the need that there is a need for a center here. And then in 2016, she actually got a full-time job offer from core in Florida. And I really didn't want her to go. (laughs) And so she said, well, if I'm going to stay here, we got to do something worthwhile. And you know, when all the stars align and the universe just makes everything all opens all the right doors for you. That's exactly what happened. 
And in April of 2017, Reu Paralysis Recovery Center was a registered nonprofit organization, and we opened our doors. Yay! So what? Um, so it's essentially, it's based off the uh, the Rewalk uh, project Project Walk um, uh, syllabus, I guess. And kind of, yeah, yeah, activity based training. But yep. So had you had any prior business experience? I'm a makeup artist. So I had like, I did makeup as a business, but it was very, very small. So no, I have no business experience. So for anybody thinking about starting up uh, their own business as a, you know, as a wheelchair mm-hmm. user, um, what advice would you have for them? Um, the first place, piece of advice I usually give to everybody is to find a business partner who has opposite strengths than you and who you admire and respect on an equal basis. That honestly has been one of the biggest saving graces for myself. And I guess I would honestly tell people how much work it really takes because nobody told me how much work that's going to take. <laughs> and it is a lot of work. <laughs> but if you're, you know, I suppose the thing is if you're driven by, by goal, uh, to help people and, and make a difference mm. in the world, then, you know, that work is all worthwhile, right? Um, yeah, 100%. You know, I, th- I think you have to be quite clear on your your vision for, for your enterprise, you know, why you have to have a very strong why as to um, what's yeah. driving you. And once you have that, that will drive you through the hard times, right? Because the hard times, you know, sometimes you feel like giving up. But, you know, if you've got this clear vision as to why you're doing it, then that'll help drive you through. Yeah. Well, I feel that's important with any job, whether it's a business for yourself or you're working for somebody else. Mm. If your why isn't strong and you don't know what your why is, are you just existing or are you living? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I spoke with you uh, in person up in Edmonton, you said mm-hmm. that, you know, trying to um, – trying to get approval from, you know, the, the government's healthcare system for the services you offer was tricky. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, like we expected pushback from the medical community because here in Canada, neuro rehab and neuro recovery is, uh, is not a real possibility. Um, times are changing now, but three, four years ago when we opened, Um, you know, we talked to our rehab hospital here. We said, we want your support. We need your support. And to my face, they told me that, yeah, we support you. This is a great idea. But what ended up happening is our clients are their patients. They would come to us, work out with us, start seeing improvements in their strength, mobility, in their connection. And then they would go back to them and tell them that what we were doing is working. And then that's when <laughs> egos, <laughs> well, that's when egos come into play. And like at Ryu, we have a giant sign at the front door that says, leave your ego at the door because <laughs> this is, there's no room in this building for it. And that's how I feel about healthcare. And that's how healthcare should be. If it was truly a patient centered model, but it's not, it's a business and egos get involved. And so it, like I said, it is getting better and they are coming around now, but it has taken three years to get to that point. I think it's also interesting how 
um, you know, in order for uh, you know a particular discipline to be accepted, it has to have been scientifically proven in some way. Um, yeah. You know, through through a you know through through a sort of standard process, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, I uh, when when I first had my injury, I went and got massage therapy, um, mm-hmm. and you know that wasn't covered. It wasn't wasn't paid for. It was actually the, the physiotherapists who were with me sort of poo hooed it and said, "Oh no, no, that's you know it's not going to do you any good, and it's you know it's mm-hmm. you know it's not actually scientifically proven." And yet, after my um, massage therapy session, I felt markedly more relaxed. My muscles were less tense. I had less pain. You know, is that not evidence enough um, of the, of the benefit um, for that sort of thing? And so, I suppose in your case, you know, you're seeing your your patients, your clients, with markedly improved. Um, results, uh, mobility, mindset, um, pain um, reduction, and yet, um, unless it's been through a um, you know a research process um, yeah. with published results, it's less likely to be funded or um, seen as seen as beneficial. Um, is, yeah, anecdotal responses are not scientific, right? Yeah. And they want to see the studies. We want to see the numbers. We want to see your charts. We want to see studies. And like, luckily for us, activity-based training, there are many studies done showing that activity-based training is beneficial post-paralysis. And um, so we go in the studies, right? And within North America, there's a bunch of centers like ours, and we're all working together to, um, uh, what was that word? to mandate activity-based training and to regulate it, sorry, so that everybody is working with best practices. Gotcha. Yep. It's going to happen. It is happening. Um, It just takes time and a lot of advocacy. Yeah, that's great. Um, Well, yeah, there's a a center that's opened up in New Zealand and uh, the people that have been to it are – yeah, are seeing a lot of great results. And I think it also it's the social aspect to it as well. I think yeah. having spoken to a lot of people, it's not just the physical, it's it's being um, yeah, it's being treated really well and um, that's the fun and the social aspect. And um, mm-hmm. you know, I saw that, you know, y- your community was um, super welcoming and warm and you know, you need that if you've just been through hell. Yeah. Well, I mean, oftentimes you lose your friends, right? Your real friends don't know how to deal with you now that you have a disability. So, and people are fickle, right? So they will leave. And, you know, I've had that happen to myself as well, but I also have amazing friends who stepped up and my family has been unwavering. But what about those people who don't have family support? They don't have friends to support them. Mm. What about them? And so that's a big reason as to why we opened Ryu was for the community. You know, I have a few clients who have told me, this is the first time I was treated like a human. Like that breaks my heart. Mm. Right. And I mean, just because you have a disability and just because you're of a different cultural background or maybe you're overweight or you're whatever, right. In our community, in our society here, here in Edmonton, especially in Alberta, it's really bad. The stigma sucks. If you're not a perfect, able-bodied perf- person walking around with a big white truck, you know, you're not worth my time is basically the attitude. Hmm. That's, that sucks. Yep. But we're changing it. 
Yeah, and I've always uh, I've always set up tall and looked people in the eye and mm-hmm. shown confidence, and then that nine times out of ten gets reflected straight back at me. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think for those of you listening out there, do your bit. Um, you know, sit up tall, look people in the eye. Um, you know, show confidence, even if you're really not feeling that confident, try and show confidence and, um, (laughs) you know, that will change the stigma that's attached, um, and the the attitude that, um, people show towards wheelchair users out there. Yeah. And just a simple smile, honestly, a smile will go a long ways where people, you know, they're intrigued by something different and they're also scared and, you know, when I, I tell a lot of my clients all the time, just smile at people, right? Like people look at me sometimes and, you know, I, I see pity on their face, right? Mm. And then I'll just smile and then that pity's gone and they're just smiling back at me. And yeah. I've also had people actually come up to me and be like, I was in Mexico last year for a wedding and quite a few people came up to me and they were like, why are you always smiling? I'm like, dude, it's January. I'm in Mexico. It's plus 30, not minus 30. And I'm alive. Like, why wouldn't I be happy? (laughs) And then I just say to them, like, would you, would it make you feel better if I was crying and sad about my life? Would that make you feel better? Wow. And then they have nothing to say. Cause I'm like, you think that I should be sad about my life where really you're probably sad about your own life. Cause you're jealous that I'm happy about my life in a wheelchair. Wow. That's an interesting perspective. I love it. And honestly, I'm just so sick and tired of people. So I just don't even care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is good. It is good to smile. I, I love it. And I, I get exactly the same response, um, yeah. which is, which is beautiful. And, you know, yeah. especially, especially, um, children that may, you know, be a little bit afraid of you, you know, you're kind of, yeah. And you give them a big smile and you actually confidently say, hello, how are you doing? It just, yeah. it, you see this kind of little shift in their mind. They're like, oh, yeah. hey, you know. So, um, yeah, the more we do that, the better. Yeah, because, I mean, that's actually where the stigma starts is with kids. Hmm. And I've seen it where, like, I'm a kid magnet, right? My chair is gold. I have, I'm usually wearing neon clothes. And so kids <laughs> always come to me and I don't mind, you know, I will, kids will ask me, why are you in a wheelchair? And I say, oh, I got sick. So my legs don't work anymore. But it's the parents who are like, no, 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 no. Don't ask. Don't talk to that person. And when your parent reacts like that, your initial response is fear as a child. And so now you've associated somebody with a disability with fear Mm. and stigma starts. And so I will often say to the parents, it's okay. They're allowed to ask whatever questions they want. And I would rather I tell them the truth than you go around the corner and lie to them. <laughs> yeah, true. That's, that's right? yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. I feel like we just, as, as wheelchair users are people with disabilities, no matter if your disability is invisible or visible, we have to stand up for ourselves and we have to be the ones that are out and about in the community getting rid of the stigma and showing people that hey man we're normal people too just shitty things happen to us totally that is a very very good point you know no one else is going to change that stigma for us <laughs> we have to do it ourselves yep 100% uh, i love it um, Bean, what uh, what goals do you have for the paralysis center and um, 
and other areas of your life uh, moving forward? I have very big goals for everything. Um, for <laughs> no <Ryu>. surprise. <laughs> for Ryu, I mean, our immediate goal is, one, to help as many people as we can. Um, two, to be affordable and accessible to all. Um, we plan to have our own freestanding state-of-the-art facility um, and either attached to or close by, I would like to have a 20 to 40 unit accessible housing unit. Um, that's a big issue in our city here is accessible housing. And so mm. that's something I want to address. And then for, you know, activity-based training, we want to make activity-based training part of the kinesiology degree program. We want it to be a university-level course. Um, we are working right now with the physiatrists and stuff to remodel the spinal cord injury program, where hopefully we can implement activity-based training directly in the acute setting so that the person can mitigate atrophy and, you know, pressure sores and all of the other complications that arise from a spinal cord injury. So those are kind of our big goals with Ryu. For myself, one of my biggest things has always been to get rid of the stigma and to show people that just because you have a disability doesn't mean you can't live a happy, successful life. It looks different for each person, but it is possible. And to really just show people that it doesn't matter what color your skin is, it doesn't matter where you're born, it doesn't matter any demographics, they don't matter. A disability can affect anybody. And until we live in a truly inclusive world, I'm not going to stop advocating for it. Yeah, girl, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love yeah, it. <laughs> so, how can people help? How can people help with the Rayu um, uh, vision you have? Um, is there, uh, you know, do you uh, are you looking for partnerships, sponsors, donations? Is there some way that people yeah. can reach out and help you? Of course, all of the above, actually. Um, we are a registered nonprofit, right? So funding is always something that we're always going to be working hard for. Um, obviously, we accept donations. We are not a charity yet, so we can't write tax receipts. Um, but that is in the future plans. Mm -hmm. um, as far as helping, yeah, we're always looking for different partnerships in our community, um, even online. Um, we try to have a very big resource center for our clients where working with other you know, gyms in the community, working with other people so that just to get people out in the community. And then, yeah, to reach us, you can either through our website, which is reyu.ca, R-E-Y-U.ca, um, through our Instagram, which is reuprc, and that's our Twitter handle as well. And then on Facebook, it's Reu Paralysis Recovery Center. And you can also get in contact with me personally at my Instagram, which is brandzoid, or my email address, which is bean at reu.ca. So good. So good. Bean, it's been a wonderful conversation. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. There's uh, so many action points there for people listening. Um, and, you know, I appreciate your honesty and, and openness around your mental health uh, struggles. But uh, more importantly, the, the steps you've taken to um, uh, keep that, keep that at bay and to, to move forward and you know thanks for the energy you're putting in in your corner of the world and, and globally for um changing changing attitudes towards uh, wheelchair users and uh, for your drive to make a change in the um, recovery uh, space uh, it's absolutely amazing thank you very much i really appreciate that
And, um, you know, I'm wishing you and your family and friends uh, all the best and uh, during this uh, COVID-19 struggle that we're all going through. Uh, stay safe and, um, yeah, keep positive. And um, now's a great time to listen to, uh, to to a bunch of podcasts with amazing people like Bean. So, um, uh, you know, be sure to check out previous um, episodes and uh, ones to follow. Yeah, and if I don't, if you don't mind, I'm going to plug my own podcast. Of course, go ahead. <laughs> my sister and I have a podcast called The Tin of Beans Show. It's the Seinfeld of podcasts. If you want to just laugh your ass off for half an hour, tune in. <laughs> I will be for sure. Hey, Bean, awesome. thanks so much uh, for joining us. Um, yeah, really appreciate it, and um, look forward to um, catching up soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Mike. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and meeting today's Adaptifier. To learn more about Adaptify and the products we have in development, products that will increase freedom for wheelchair users, go to adaptdefy.com. That's A-D-A-P-T-D-E-F-Y.com. We're also on all the major social media platforms at Adaptify. Follow us there for more behind-the-scenes looks and more up-to-date information on product releases. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Look forward to catching you next time.